This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Menopause. Millions of women go through it every year. I was sobbing on the phone in rush hour traffic. I hadn't been sleeping. I was having these weird mood swings. And I called my OBGYN. He listened and basically said, I'm not going to give you a pill for this. Most of my friends have either gone through this transition or currently going through it and they don't want to talk about it. I had to ask the questions. I had to do the research. This aspect of my health feels completely ignored in the medical establishment. My mom never talked about it. Primary care never set me up for this. I feel like even society hasn't um, prepared me for this. On what I'm going through, I feel absolutely invisible. On Point listeners Lila Anna in Columbia, South Carolina, Andrea Hardy in Portland, Oregon, Angela Everett in Arlington, Virginia, Sarah Vinal in Portland, Oregon, and Mara Martinez in Indian Head Park, Illinois. Well, today we are going to talk about menopause, specifically what the latest science shows us about how it affects women's brains. Lisa Mosconi joins us. She's a neuroscientist and director of the Women's Brain Initiative at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. And she's author of the forthcoming book, The Menopause Brain. New science empowers women to navigate the pivotal transition with knowledge and confidence. Lisa, welcome to On Point. Hello. Happy to be here. So... We have a lot of listeners, of course, most of them women listeners, who responded very positively to the fact that we were going to have this conversation. (laughs) But I wanted to start with sort of how you became uh, interested in menopause uh, and the brain, because obviously you've written a lot about the the female brain before. You have at least a couple of other books, one, The Double X Brain, and you've also Mm. written a book called Brain Food. But can you tell us the story of how you became interested in focusing on menopause as a neuroscientist. Yes, and thank you for asking. It's, it is an interesting story because I, I really I, I would never have thought that one day I would be here on NPR talking about menopause. I, I am a brain scientist by training and I, I have a dual PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine, which is a branch of radiology. So I do a lot of brain imaging for, for my line of work and they actually specialize in the prevention of Alzheimer's disease and support of cognitive aging. So dementia prevention is really has been the major focus of my work for the past 20 years since I was very, very young. And that's because I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. that affects the women in my family. And it turns out I'm not the only one. Currently, almost two-thirds of all Alzheimer's patients are women. And this gap and this higher prevalence was dismissed for many, many years in medicine by people saying, well, women live longer than mm-hmm. men. And I was just going to say that. I thought that was the presumption, right? Yes, I've been getting this pushback pretty much <laughs> my entire life at this point. But they really came with this question and there was like, does it matter if you're a woman or if you're a man in terms of Alzheimer's risk? And everybody would tell me, no, no, really, the point is that Alzheimer's is a disease of old age and women live longer than men. Therefore, at some point, more women than men will have Alzheimer's disease. And that never made sense to me, in part because women don't live that much longer than men, maybe a couple of years 
longer than men, but not like a decade longer. But then mostly my PhD work was really focused on showing that Alzheimer's disease is not a disease of old age. It's actually a disease of midlife with symptoms that start in old age. So in other words, Alzheimer's starts with negative changes in the brain, years if not decades before clinical symptoms emerge. So that changed our entire question to, all right, so if more women than men have Alzheimer's disease, and Alzheimer's is a disease of midlife, what happens to women and not to men in midlife that could potentially increase the risk of developing Alzheimer's. And by doing a lot of different studies and brain imaging evaluations of running a lot of different experiments, we found out that menopause seems to be a potential trigger for Alzheimer's disease in women's brains already in midlife. So that's how I ended up studying on menopause, really, which is now a huge focus of our research. So I have a couple of follow-up scientific I'm questions sure. to that. But, but yeah. also, I think <laughs> if, I, if I remember correctly, um, there was essentially a, a kind of a eureka moment around one... Uh, yes. Pre- yeah. Can you tell us that story? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. So this is interesting because we were... Um, so we, we've been working with individuals who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s because we're able to detect the earliest possible signs of Alzheimer's disease in the brain, but using brain scans already at that age. And so we compare, when we compared women's brains to men's brains, we, we would find that women's brains were more Alzheimer's-like than men's brains already in midlife. And the question is, like, why? Is it just female sex? Is it just being born with two X chromosomes and ovaries? Or is there something more? And we started looking at everything that could explain this difference. We started with genetics, of course, and family history. And that, yeah, that helped a little bit, but not quite to explain these differences. And then we looked at medical risks, as diabetes, thyroid disease, and insulin resistance, and cardiovascular risk factors. And that didn't quite help. And then one day, my, my students were doing cognitive testing on one of our participants, a um, woman, of course, who was having a hard time. And she was having a hard time just focusing and performing the cognitive tests. And she said, I, I really need a break. And can you please open the window? <laughs> oh, dear. And my students were like, uh, what? <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, by all means, take a break. We usually offer water. Would you, why the window? And she said, like, because I'm having hot flashes, I can't think straight. <laughs> and they were all like, you're having what? And then, then eventually she just couldn't do the testing and they ran back to me and said, this, this lady unfortunately had to leave. We're going to reschedule, but we were very, very worried. She said that, that she, she needed to open the window. She needed air. She was having half lashes. <laughs> they didn't know what that meant. Oh, dear. Okay. They had no idea because we, we never really talked about menopause before. And then I say, oh, half flashes. She, she was having, they explained it's a sign of menopause. And even though she's young, she was young, she was in her 40s. And a lot of people mistake, in quotes, menopause for something that happens to you when you're old, right? And 40 is not old by any definition, so they were really surprised. And then we went, uh, then I called the OB-GYN department, OB-GYN department, and I said, we really need to start looking at menopause. And so we went back and we asked every single person in the study about their menopausal status. And then we were able to show the differences. So... When you take a group, at least in our hands, when we're looking at 
women who are premenopausal, they have a regular menstrual cycle, and we compare them with a group of men who are matched by age, exactly the same age, then we didn't find any differences in their brains. But when the women were perimenopausal, so when they started having an irregular menstrual cycle and the half flashes, the night sweats and those symptoms, then we started seeing an increase in the red flags for Alzheimer's disease in their brains as compared to men who were exactly the same age. And when the women were actually at the postmenopausal stage, then we really saw a clear cut difference in terms of Alzheimer's risk. Okay. And that was quite, whoa. Yeah. Okay, so so I'm going to come back to, we'll speak in more detail about your research regarding Alzheimer's and menopause, because I know a lot of people are probably like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I actually just want to take a moment um, to be sure that we all have a collective, accurate understanding of exactly yes. what menopause is. So we actually reached out to Dr. Jan Schifrin. She's a reproductive mm-hmm. endocrinologist and OBGYN, and she also directs the Midlife Women's Center at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she offered us a quick menopause 101. Menopause is really when the ovaries have kind of come to the end of their reproductive life. The ovaries have two major parts, one of which is called the granulosa cells, the kind of structures in the ovary that are responsible for making estrogen throughout reproductive life. With menopause, you can actually look at an ovary on an ultrasound and see that these follicles have disappeared. We think that this is basically genetically programmed cell death of these important cells in the ovary that, again, are responsible for eggs and for most of the reproductive hormones. And Dr. Schifrin says two of the most important hormones, estrogen and progesterone. Typically, the ovary will make estrogen for most of the, let's say, 28-day menstrual cycle. And then the ovary will also make a second hormone called progesterone for the second half of the menstrual cycle. The major goal of both of those hormones for cycling women is to basically prepare the lining of the uterus, what we call the endometrium, for pregnancy. With menopause, the ovary is no longer kind of doing that beautiful cycle with the estrogen and then estrogen and progesterone. And so basically, the hormones estrogen and progesterone are very, very low when a woman is menopausal. There are still other places in a postmenopausal woman's body where she does make some estrogen, but not nearly the same amount she made when she was cycling regularly. And Dr. Schifrin says it's that drop in estrogen that can cause things like bone loss, hot flashes, trouble sleeping. So that's just a little refresher uh, from Dr. Schifrin. Again, she's a reproductive endocrinologist and OBGYN. We're going to hear more from her uh, a little bit later in the show for her answer to the question that I think most of my uh, fellow ladies listening right now want to know, which is should you or shouldn't you take hormone replacement therapy? But that's going to come a little later uh, in the hour. Now, we've got... um, just about 30 seconds before our first break, Lisa, I yeah. just quickly want to know if that so you want to reassure people yes. that you have, the first part of your book is all about you are not imagining this. This is actually happening to your body, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Menopause is a neurologically active state. It changes your brain as surely as it changes your ovaries. Okay, so we're going to talk about what those brain changes are when we come back from this break. We're joined today by Lisa Mosconi. She's a neuroscientist and director of the Women's Brain Initiative at Weill Cornell Medicine and author of the forthcoming book, 
the menopause brain. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today Lisa Mosconi joins us. She's the author of the forthcoming book, The Menopause Brain, New Science Empowers Women to Navigate the Pivotal Transition with Knowledge and Confidence. And we did hear from many of you who are experiencing menopause right now, and you shared what some of your symptoms are. So let's listen. It hit me like a freight train. By age 45, I was having hot flashes. I developed depression and severe anxiety. Barely slept for months on end. I would be driving somewhere and suddenly wouldn't remember where I was going or why I was going there. 10 to 15 really bad, sweaty, hot flashes a day. Bloating, breast tenderness. Noticed about five pounds around my middle. Urinary incontinence, which has not been fun. These things called doom drops when you're just going about your day, minding your business, and all of a sudden just this terrible feeling comes out of nowhere and makes you feel like garbage. I call it wet cat. Wet cat is a feeling of being out in the rain with no raincoat. I just want to give all of you a collective hug because it sounds like a neural apocalypse. But that was Andrea Hardy in Portland, Oregon, Melissa Pauser in Watsonville, California, Sarah Vinal in Portland, Oregon, Kate Notman in Stowe, Massachusetts, Chris Gaston in New Kent, Virginia, and Bridget Deneen in Lakewood, Ohio, and Pamela in Maine. Okay, so Lisa, the body is this like masterful homeostatic machine. So can we say definitively whether is it changes in the brain that cause menopause or is it changes in the reproductive system that uh, that produce the, the brain impacts that those women were describing? What's actually going on that you can, you can uh, see through your research so far? And that's such a good question and such an important question because like we just heard a lot of women just don't know what hit them during menopause and a lot of physicians as well, a lot of doctors do not recognize the symptoms as something related to menopause. And I think what, what's missing here is that as a society, we basically focused on half of what menopause is all about. And most people realize that menopause is associated with something changing in the function of the ovaries. The ovaries running out of follicles, your menstrual cycle ending, the end of fertility. 
But we have completely lost track of the fact that menopause is defined as a neurological, as a neuroendocrine transition state, which means that your brain, your neurological system, is changing together with your endocrine system, with mm-hmm. your ovaries and your hormones. So this transition, in fact, impacts the brain just as much as it impacts the ovaries. And but but women why? Say, yeah, but, but, but why? why? Why is it that sort of a draw, uh, let's say, a folic- that program cell death that Dr. Schifrin yeah, talked about earlier? Follicle. Yeah, why is it that that <clears throat> drop in estrogen would have such an impact on the brain? I guess, does that imply that estrogen is an important hormone for the brain at any time for a woman? Yes, yeah. So, hor- so estrogen has been mislabeled a sex hormone in the 1930s by scientists who were studying reproduction and they found estrogen and linked the function of estrogen with uh, fertility and, and having kids and having babies. But it wasn't until much later in the 1990s, the scientists realized that the same exact hormone plays a hugely important function for our brain health. So sex hormones are actually neuroprotective hormones that literally shield your brain from harm. How? So estrogen in particular has been called, uh, is referred to by scientists as, this, as the master regulator of women's brain health. And that's because we are born with a neuroendocrine system that connects our brains with our ovaries. And this system is activated during puberty, is overactivated during pregnancy every time a woman is pregnant. And then it's turned off with menopause. And the way that the ovaries and the brain communicate is by using these hormones like estrogen, progesterone, which are made by the ovaries, but also by the brain. And then the brain releases different hormones called FSH and LH. They go down to the ovaries and say, okay, we need more estrogen here. So it's really a feedback loop that ensures that the brain is in communication with the ovaries every minute of our lives as women. So you need to think about it this way. Every time your ovaries cycle, your brain goes through a micro cycle where all the things that are powered by estrogen increase when your estrogen levels are high and decrease when your estrogen levels are low. And these things are like neuroprotection, immunity inside the brain, the amount of dendrite, the amount of little branches that your neurons make increase and decrease during different parts of the menstrual cycle in response to estrogen levels. Brain energy level changes in response to estrogen stimulation. In some ways, estrogen is to your brain what fuel is to a car. Wow. It keeps it running. Yes. Okay, or so like, if I can... so. So you said that like the, the number of dendrites actually grows? Yes, we can see it. We can see it with imaging. We can see it in vitro. Yes, it's really pretty. So does that mean... To me. No, it's beautiful. Cute. It sounds beautiful, but I'm just try, I'm trying not to be overly simplistic about this, but I can't right. help it. Like, what is the impact of the increase in number of dendrites in the brain? It, it, does it make the brain uh, more capable? I mean, I don't know how to put it. Capable, I guess, is more... Um, you know, psychologists maybe yeah. use this term. From from a raw biological perspective, it makes the brain more connected. Okay. okay. It gives you a little bit more resilience. Got and it. it doesn't really translate necessarily into behavior. Although we do know that for some women, there are changes in 
brain fog, in focus and concentration, in mood already during the menstrual cycle. Yeah. Many women experience PMS. Yeah. Right? So again, it seems kind of, um, again, it, we can't, I totally take your point about that we can't draw a straight line between what's right. physically happening and um, uh, psychological experiences, but it almost seems a little ironic that when you have an increase, <laughs> an increase in the number of dendrites, one of the symptoms people often feel is, or women often feel is, uh, brain fog. <laughs> One would think that it's... No, the opposite. So when the, the dendrites oh, it's the, it's increase... it's the decrease? Yes, ah. yes. So that's when you feel more energized around ovulation. Oh. Usually you feel more on point, if you will. You feel more focused. You have better energy, better mood, more libido in some ways. And then towards the end of the menstrual cycle, with estrogen withdraws and progesterone is there, right? When you, once you prepare for the menstrual cycle, these hormones withdraw, and so do your dendrites. I see. But you and know, then you may feel a little bit more tired. And these are very subtle changes, to be clear. Okay. These are microscopic changes. But there are changes that are important in terms of cellular activity, cellular energy, cellular aging very important. Uh If I may add, because I don't want anybody to be scared, menopause does not cause Alzheimer's disease. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Tell tell yes. me more because because when we started the show, I was like, oh, people are going to be worried that if they, right. when they go through we, menopause, we that. yeah, that Alzheimer's yeah. is inevitable. But obviously, that's not no, the no, case. No. no, it's totally not the case. So, about twenty percent of women develop Alzheimer's disease in their lifetime, which is way too many for for my taste. But it also, since every woman develops menopause at some point or the other in their lives, it also tells us that there's more. You know, there are many other factors that interact and intervene, and that Alzheimer's disease is a very complex disorder. What we what we understand about menopause is that it's a transition state. It's a state in which your brain is left a little bit more vulnerable because we're losing the superpowers of estrogen and progesterone that keep your brain energized and active and youthful, in quotes, from a cellular uh, perspective. So your brain is a little bit more vulnerable, which means that some medical risks may then become actual medical symptoms as women go through menopause. For instance, if a woman has a predisposition to major depression or to clinical depression, chances are that she may experience depressive symptoms for the first time in her life during menopause. If a woman has a predisposition to an autoimmune disorder like multiple sclerosis, chances are that the first signs of multiple sclerosis in the brain will become visible around the menopause transition. And the same seems to be happening for Alzheimer's disease. If a woman has a predisposition to Alzheimer's disease, that menopause is when we start seeing the red flags for the disease. But it does not mean, obviously, that all women will develop Alzheimer's disease. That, that would be an overstatement. We're just saying that Estrogen is a neuroprotective hormone and it's been studied, studying in relationship with Alzheimer's disease risk. And there seems to be a connection that needs to be explored further, for sure. And that will also um, inform treatment options and preventative options, but absolutely do not, do not be scared. Menopause does not cause Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. What it can do is being evaluated as a female-specific risk factor for Alzheimer's. Mm, okay, thank you for Does that clarification. Oh, totally. Okay. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Good. I mean, there, it, it sounds it makes perfect sense because you know there are other stages in life where people 
become vulnerable to to other yes. things and and for puberty, me- pregnancy. It, yeah, exactly. Right? I think it's important to see this continuum that if you had anxiety attacks during puberty, which is very common for women, and you had anxiety again during pregnancy, chances are you will have Alzheimer's. Sorry, anxiety, anxiety um, during the transition to menopause. There's a continuum. Because this this system is activated and deactivated at different turning points in a reproductive life, but it's the same system. Right, but it doesn't have to be a permanent state once you're no. once you're in menopause. If you say using no. the anxiety example, oh, absolutely. Typically, for most women, uh, the symptoms that are triggered by the menopause transition go away within sometimes four to six years after the final menstrual period. For some women, just two years. For some women, it takes a lot longer. And for some women, unfortunately, the symptoms do not go away. So I think it's really important to appreciate the menopause is not a one-size-fits-all situation, although it's been portrayed as such in medicine, unfortunately, at this point. But rather, it comes with a range of possible symptoms and combination of symptoms mm-hmm. and severity of symptoms that really has no framework currently but needs to be formalized because it's so important to acknowledge that like with pregnancy, right, some women have no mood issues with pregnancy, some women have the baby blues, some women experience postpartum depression, and a few women experience postpartum psychosis, which is very, very severe. And there's evidence that a similar range of symptomatology may be present with menopause that really has not been studied, but should be, because that validates women's experiences and gives them the wording and the vocabulary to not only describe their symptoms to their doctors, but also to seek treatment that is appropriate for the severity of their symptoms. Mm-hmm. And we do that for brain fog, for example, and cognitive changes and memory decline. A lot of our patients come to us for brain fog, specifically mm-hmm. in Alzheimer's mm-hmm. prevention. So. Lisa, I, I can't help but to, when I hear you talk about the protective power of these mm. reproductive hormones on the brain, right? The increase and de- decrease in dendritic connections, the yeah. the brain, the flux <laughs> like of, I love it. I mean, I, it, <laughs> the, neuroscience is absolutely fascinating and, you know, makes me feel even more proud of the female brain. But, um, yes, me too. But, you know, and, and the, the, the fluctuation in brain energy, um, and sort of when this happens in that you call them the three P's of life, right? Yes. Uh, so uh, yes. puberty... Uh, was the next one peri pregnancy, pregnancy and and perimenopause? Perimenopause. Yeah. So, uh, but I can't help but to think, sort of, let's say, in an evolutionary, uh, from an evolutionary mm-hmm. mindset, that you're also talking about, you know, times in a woman's life that are really intimately tied to reproduction, right? Because yes. you talked about during pregnancy a lot of the surge in these hormones. Well, it makes sense that a woman's brain would want to be sort of superpowered and protected during pregnancy, and the reason why I point that out is, um, do you think one of the reasons why there has been inadequate study of menopause Mm. and the brain, or even as we heard our listeners at the beginning of the show say, people just don't even want to talk about it, is because from this, I guess, psychological perspective that when you enter menopause as a woman, you're also exiting a definitive period of life where, you know, you can... Bear a child if you want to, mm-hmm. right? So you, you, you've you exited the period of time where you can bring forth life into this world. And so therefore, on a species level, you've kind of exhausted your usefulness. Um, and so, it's insane, isn't it? Right. I mean, do you think that that's kind of part of why there's been, you know, kind of a 
almost a, a, a deliberate scientific ignorance of wanting to study menopause more? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, I think in medicine, we're, we're a little bit uh, penalized as women by this framework that I, I refer to as bikini medicine, which is really how historically medical professionals and scientists alike truly believed that women were essentially smaller men with mm. different reproductive organs. But then those differences aside, so if you, if you just consider those body parts that fit under a bikini, that's saying that from a medical perspective, what makes a woman a woman are specifically her breasts and ovaries and nothing else. Right. And medicine is based on this framework and neuroscience is based on this framework. And it really all comes down to Darwin, with, you know, the father of modern biology, who very specifically said the, por- the, the whole point of evolution is to have kids. Once you can no longer have children, then from an evolutionary perspective, you should just not stay alive. Mm. And that's very interesting if you're a man, because men are fertile through their 80s, right, 70s and 80s. But obviously, it does not apply to women. So there's there's been a push in evolutionary biology to really upend this, this possibly faulty notion by considering that evolution doesn't have to be as misogynistic as those who study it, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something about women that make us valuable. Even beyond after beyond beyond we're procreation, done yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Which you know, anyone I can tell you, it's just so obvious. But there's this there's a hypothesis called the grandmother hypothesis that states very clearly that for a woman, it is actually more advantageous to stop being fertile at some point in your life and stay alive. Yeah, right? because the chance of dying from childbirth are much higher the older you are. And also there are risks to the offspring with older parents. So it's better in some ways to not longer being able to have children, but remain alive to help your daughters have children themselves. In this way, you're still passing on your genes, right, to mm-hmm. the next generations. You just don't do it directly yourself, but you do it via your, your daughters and sons. And that's a wonderful way to think about aging in general, if you think about grandmothers as evolutionary superheroes, in a way, who really stepped in to save the day. And this is especially important for our species because something that we really don't talk about is that menopause is a gift, is a blessing. The ability to outlive menopause is very unique in biology. If you think about it, on the entire planet, there's only four animal species where the females are able to live after menopause. Women, thank goodness, some whales, some elephants, and the Japanese aphid, which is a bug. Aside from that, all other species die soon after menopause. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, I think it is. Wow. Okay. So, Lisa, stand by for a moment, because when we come back, I want to... Uh, dig a little deeper with you about the, more of the why does menopause happen and, and again what happens in the brain and then of course we'll get to that big question of hormone replacement therapy, uh, therapy and your th- th- thoughts about it so we'll be back this is all point Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. 
a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Lisa Mosconi is our guest today. She's a neuroscientist and author of the forthcoming book, The Menopause Brain, New Science that Empowers Women to Navigate the Pivotal Transition with Knowledge and Confidence. And Lisa, I was going to actually get straight to the HRT question, but then suddenly it occurred to me over the break that of the four species that you say outlive men- uh, the, 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 fa- mm-hmm. the phase of life of menopause, humans... Uh, elephants. Killer whales. Kill, is it specific? Only killer yes. whales? Okay. Killer whales. Okay. Just, um, so hum- narwhals. Oh, so humans, narwhals and, and orcas and maybe some other whale species. Elephants. Love them. One, ele- one type of elephant. Only uh-huh. one type. Which one? Yeah. I'm the Asian. The Asian. And not the African elephant? Oh my God. Okay. So the, we, we could do a whole know, hour on just that. Um, and then the last one, which I just kind of yes. did a double take. Did you actually say Japanese aphids? I did. It's I didn't even know insects menstruated or had <laughs> menstrual cycles. Well, they, I mean, they and they don't. They don't but menstruate. It, it's more like at some point they no longer are reproductive. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, my really whole funny. understanding of the insect kingdom was like the was gonna or the insect phyla <laughs> was up. gonna just like blow up. So so after their their reproductive phase, they, these aphids live. Okay. Yes. That's still kind really of amazing. Funny is that yeah. They turn into a kind of spiky thing as they go through menopause. It's really like just do not touch me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, yeah. So. So I do want to hear a little bit more about more of the sort of why do you think, why does this happen again? And we can talk about um, the brain connection here because one of the answers you gave for the why of menopause was that Mm -hmm. uh, just for humans – carrying, being pregnant later in life is much more dangerous for for the woman. Are there any other whys of menopause? I think there are many whys of menopause. They really need to be researched in greater detail. But I I think from a neurological perspective, it's also a good thing that's happening to us because, so we are born with this neuroendocrine system that connects the brain with the ovaries. And it's very expensive to have it, metabolically speaking. It's a lot of neurons they need to be able to activate a menstrual cycle, activate a pregnancy, help you sustain a pregnancy. Once you go through menopause, you no longer need to get pregnant. 
all those neurons, all those connections are no longer necessary. So menopause, this is my own personal hypothesis to be fully confirmed. But as a, as a neuroscientist, the way I'm thinking about it is that menopause is a biological clue for the brain to shed some neurons that are no longer needed and get leaner and meaner, if you will. Uh-huh. There's a whole rewiring that takes place in the menopause brain that is in part about probably just getting rid of the neurons you no longer need, although that, of course, creates some glitches, yeah. right? Changes in body temperature, changes in mood, and changes in memory, and changes in sleep. But at the same time, this rewiring seems to be happening for a good reason, which is to really prepare women for the next phase of life, for the non-reproductive phase of life that can be just as productive. And menopause seems to be associated with some good changes from a neurological perspective where women gain in empathy and emotional control, which are Mm. two very important factors to sustain happiness long-term. So one of the most interesting and surprising things that I I come across about menopause is that Postmenopausal women tend to report greater life contentment and greater happiness over time as compared to younger premenopausal women, but mostly as compared to themselves uh-huh. before they went through menopause. Yeah. You know, I, and I think this is a gift. It, it can be a gift. It sounds wonderful. I, I presume there's a lot of confounders there. To, yeah, you know, course, in of terms course. of being able to say that's a pure causation. But the re, the rewiring of the brain, though, mm. it sounds a whole lot that's, like the neural pruning, fact. the neural pruning that yes. goes on for young kids when they're like what five, six, seven years old. Uh, and puberty. Yeah, that's what happens. The puberty and pregnancy. That's exactly what happens. That the brain sheds a lot of neurons. Like, you lose gray matter volume but, in both puberty and pregnancy. But isn't the thought that um, I'm thinking of the neural pruning in young children that it's not necess- it's not a negative thing. It's just the brain. Right. It's clearing out sort of the, the connections that it doesn't need anymore in order to make the rest of the brain sort of more effective and, and efficient. Exactly. That's exactly right. And there's reason to believe that something similar may be happening during menopause as well. Okay. We just don't think about it that way because... Everything about menopause is seen as doom and gloom. All the research on menopause is about looking at the downfall, right? Looking at all the problems and the symptoms and finding a cure. And we may we may be missing out on the positives yeah. that this transition brings. You know, our, earlier in the show, I... I uh, was trying. I was sympathizing with our listeners and calling their their symptoms. It sounded like a neural apocalypse to me. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that back <laughs> because <that's laughs> no. Not- but it feels like it. It sounds like it. It feels like it. I, I think. See, this research is not to discount the symptoms and the challenges that women experience. It's more about putting it, putting everything in context. Because if you understand what's happening in your brain and that there's a reason for it, it's a means to an end at the end of the day, that gives you more agency and makes you feel more in power and more in control of your outcomes. And I think that's really important. So on one hand, first of all, we're not making things up. It's not all in your head. You're not going crazy. These are real symptoms. Your brain is, in fact, changing, right? And then once we acknowledge that, we also understand that there are solutions and there are things that one can do to feel better mm-hmm. and to avoid suffering. You know, menopause is this unique scenario in medicine where silent suffering is not only 
acceptance is actually recommended or encouraged. Yeah. And that is insane. All okay. women go through menopause oh. and over 85% of women experience brain symptoms during, during menopause and beyond. Well, on that note, I have to turn back to our listeners because we also asked folks, okay, so what do you do uh, to treat your symptoms of menopause? And uh, you talked about silent suffering. Um, that, would, that came up. And so here's what uh, some of our listeners said. Kind of gritting my teeth and bearing through it. I did finally find a perimenopausal support group. My nurse practitioner suggested gabapentin, and that has just been a lifesaver for me with the hot flashes. Exercising on a regular basis, treating my body more healthy. I started natural hormone treatment. I'm my old self again. Instead of estrogen pills, they prescribed this cream. You rubbed it on your thighs. It helped so much. It's completely changed my life. My brain fog is gone. There's no more weird heat sensations. So that was Rachel Starr in Watertown, Massachusetts, Andrea Hardy in Portland, Oregon, Bridget Deneen in Lakewood, Ohio, Pam Curativo in Bar Harbor, Maine, Lila Anna in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, another Pam in Maine, and Amy Jackson in Wake Forest, North Carolina. You know, Lisa, I think one of the things that really jumps out at me is the completely spectacular variety of yes. treatments that women turn to. I mean, yes. what what do you what do you make of that? What does it tell you about the state of of medicine and medical treatments around menopause? Uh, well, it tells me a couple of things. Then, the the first thing that that comes to mind is that hormone replacement therapy (HRT), which is now called menopause hormone therapy or MHT, is actually the first line of treatment for symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. But a lot of women do not choose that option because of fears around breast cancer or other risks that have been a little bit um, exaggerated in the media almost 20 years ago. And HRT has been really suffering from this bad rap. It has been very hard to to. Uh, resolve in some way. I have to jump in here because I don't think yes. it was just a little bit exaggerated. I mean, <laughs> okay, good. It, I'm never sure. No, you, know, you don't have to step lightly <clears throat> around that. I mean, it was one of okay. those pitfalls that the media frequently falls into about, you know, there's one finding in one study, for example, and um, no one reads about the internal relative risks that are revealed in that study. And they just say, mm-hmm. oh, look, it found that it increases your risk of breast cancer. And that's the headline that gets everywhere. And mill- thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, I don't know how many women decided not to do uh, hormone treatment after yes. that. I mean, Yeah, which is when called Turkey, which is also just as unfortunate in some ways. Yes, but what we know now about hormone replacement therapy is that in 2022, which is just a year ago, just a little over a year ago, um, professional societies reviewed all the available evidence and determined that a change in guidelines was appropriate. So 2022 was a big year for HRT, where we now understand that for most women younger than age 60, or at least within 10 years of the final menstrual period, hormone replacement therapy is safe Mm -hmm. to use, and the benefits typically outweigh the risks. And this is in the guidelines, the approved official um, statements of the North American Menopause Society anyone can look it up. Lisa, can I just jump in here? Because because this is exactly what uh, Dr. 
um, Jan Schifrin mm-hmm. um, from Massachusetts right. General Hospital told us, and I and 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 I want to just get the her thoughts in here uh, from the perspective of a of a OBGYN and endocrinologist. So, you know, when we did ask her, should you, shouldn't you, about uh, HRT, here's what she first said. So if you are basically healthy at the menopause transition, typically under age 60, and you're having bothersome hot flashes, the benefits of treatment for most women like you will really outweigh the risks. So that's exactly what you just said, Lisa. Um, But then, you know, any good doctor will never tell you that anything is either zero or 100 percent effective. That's why they talk about benefits outweighing the risks. But uh, Dr. Schifrin also said there are some conditions that uh, may warrant not using HRT or MRT, as, as you called it, such as if a woman has breast cancer, endometrial cancer, heart disease, blood clots in the legs, stroke. Uh, and uh, those would say those conditions mean don't use HRT. And then she also acknowledged there are some some risks. What I always say to my patients is I'm going to share the risks and don't panic. So when we look at some of the published studies, in general, for women over age 50, menopausal hormone therapy has been associated with increased risks of heart disease, stroke, clots in the legs and lungs, uh, gallbladder disease, and breast cancer. And in women over 65 with cognitive decline and dementia. And that sounds terrifying. But she says you shouldn't be terrified because this language of associated with increased risk, I mean, you hear it all the time in things like pharma ads, but an association with increased risk doesn't necessarily mean the chances of a bad outcome jump from something small to something enormous. In fact, Dr. Schifrin told us that for women under the age of 60, the individualized risks actually change very little. We saw minimal, if any, increase in heart disease risk. The risk of stroke was increased very slightly, but women under 60 who are healthy are at incredibly low risk for stroke. There is a slight increased risk of breast cancer in women with a uterus who take estrogen and progestogen for more than four to five years, but it's a slight increased risk. To help put that risk into perspective, the relative risk of breast cancer after four to five years of estrogen and progestogen use for a woman over 50 is about the same increase risk is having two alcoholic beverages a day or having um, a high weight. So that's Dr. Jan Schifrin, director of the Midlife Women's Center at Massachusetts General Hospital. Now, Lisa, this hour has absolutely flown by and we only have a few <laughs> minutes left. Uh, you've, you, you spend um, quite a bit of time in the book also talking about, well, first of all, no, you're not imagining it. It is real. There are major yes. changes going on in the brain due to that absolutely fascinating neural endocrine system. Um, uh, hormone replacement therapy for women under 60 can be a first-line treatment for symptoms. But you also talk about um, you know, other things that women can and should do mm-hmm. in, in their lives as a whole in order to ease, you know, ease this transition to this next phase of life. Can you talk about some of those? Yes, happily. <laughs> Very happy to. And I would say that um, I think the range of treatment should really reflect women's, not just risks and needs, but also preferences. Mm-hmm. Many women prefer to navigate menopause naturally, which is a strange word, but without taking medications. And that is perfectly fine. 
And there are many lifestyle adjustments that one might want to consider that are not just helpful for menopause, but also for brain health as a whole. And these include chiefly physical activity, regular physical activity, a healthy diet, stress reduction, really, really important, sleep hygiene, avoiding environmental toxins, intellectual stimulation and lifelong learning, and regular medical checkups. These all sound like things we should be doing throughout our entire lives. Yes, and I think what's interesting is to tweak them towards your need for menopause, if you would like. Like for exercise, uh, cardiovascular exercise, like running, jogging, skipping rope and whatnot, seems to be really helpful for things like hot flashes and brain fog. But strength training seems to be quite helpful for mood as well, whereas exercises like yoga, Pilates, Tai Chi are more helpful for sleep and stress reduction. So it's interesting to know that different types of exercise can help you more with one symptom over another. Like for diet, there are so many diets out there. (laughs) But the plant-forward diet is the only one so far that's been shown to be associated with better outcomes in menopause. Mm. So fewer hot flashes, uh, less mood swings, better sleep, and better brain health. You also talk about the power of a positive mindset. We've got about 30 seconds left. I'd love for you to close with that thought. Yes. So the symptoms of menopause are not universal. There are women in different countries who do not even have hot flashes, which is important because it tells you that perhaps there's also a cultural component to menopause or a psychological component or a mindset component to the way we experience menopause. And what's interesting is that in cultures where menopause is not dreaded, but people actually look for, women really, look forward to being postmenopausal because they they gain in social status or they have more freedom or they're free from having cramps during their menstrual cycle. The whole experience of menopause is better and the symptoms are less severe. Uh So there is something that, you know, our brain is a powerful organ and that we can just stay positive and feel empowered that we can't make it through menopause. There's nothing to fight, there's nothing to fix. It's a phase. We need support, no doubt, but we can do it. We can do it. And I think there's power in that. Well, Lisa Mosconi, I hope this conversation has felt many women feel empowered. She's a neuroscientist and author of The Menopause Brain. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.